scripture text uh, this morning, which is Romans 8, uh, 20 through 25, and that's page 888 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible along, you're going to need it. Yeah, flip it open to page 888, and I will read that text for us this morning. <clears throat> Romans 8, uh, starting in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we wait for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Peter, in writing his first epistle, had a very interesting passage that he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. You see it up there on the screen. It says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, if you take that passage and break it down, grammatically or theologically, we would say that the front part of that is the key command, and we tend to look for commands in Scripture. So we are to set apart Jesus in our heart. He is to be our Lord. He is to be the one who is our King. We are to lift Him and exalt Him high, and He is the one who directs our emotions, our thoughts, and our decisions the second part of that, the always be prepared, actually technically is not, a, is not a command, but it fits as a command. We're supposed to be ready to give an answer, to give an apologetic. That apologetic is about what? That's what I want to focus on today. The one thing that stands out to me in this passage is the word hope. But we need to be able to give an apologetic. Why? Because people are asking us, about that. So my question to us today as we think about this is this. How can we be hope-filled in a hopeless world? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for all that it teaches us. And I pray, Father, that we would be fully uh, directed by and guided by everything that you want us to see and want us to know today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Before we get into hope, I want to open up a parenthesis and close a parenthesis here at the beginning. You've heard several times in the last few weeks, either people down here asking for people who want to come up and pray, because we recognize that this time of the year, the end of the year, Christmas time, the beginning of the next year, is often a time for many people of sorrow, of sadness, of pain, of recognizing loss. And although it would be great for me to be able to preach a sermon that would magnify both aspects of the hope as well as the lament, 
the lament, the biblical lament that is legitimate, I can't do that because of just the the limits of what a sermon can do. We only got 20 to 30 minutes to talk about one subject, but I want to at least mention that there is a legitimacy to a lament. There is a legitimacy to face the realities of that sorrow and that pain and that loss and that suffering and that hardship and to have a biblical lament that puts that in a perspective that God knows. And the reason I want to bring that up is because as you look at the key passage in Lamentations, right there in the middle of chapter 3, he's going through all of the things that he's lamenting about the loss and the pain and the suffering of the loss of Jerusalem and the exile. And he says in verse 21, he says, When I call all these things to mind, I have hope. What an amazing statement that is. And it reminds us of this fact, that the richness and the depth of our lament leads to a richness and a depth of hope. And then that cycles back. So that hope and lament cycle around each other in Scripture. So I want to say that to us at the beginning as I focus on hope and talk about hope. And for some of us who might be out here saying, dude, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've lived in this past year. You don't know what I'm looking forward to or scared of in this coming year. So I want to mention that, recognize that, And as we move into thinking about hope, I want to acknowledge that reality. The main idea that I want to talk about today is this. God's perspective on and provision for hope blesses us and blesses others. So God's perspective on as well as provision of hope blesses us and blesses others. Now, if you look at the Bible, and either the Old Testament or New Testament, we've got a couple words in Hebrew in the Old Testament. We've got one main word in Greek in the New Testament. And obviously, when we think about hope, we think about, well, I hope it won't rain today. I hope it won't snow today. I hope it will snow today. And we think about using hope that way. And that's true. It is used that way in Scripture in many instances. Paul says, I hope to see you soon. I hope to send Timothy to you. I hope that my ministry will result in this fruit. But what I want to focus on today is the theologically rich side of what hope is. And as we do that, there are three main ideas I want us to gather, I want us to understand, because I want us to understand scripturally so that we can take the necessary steps to ensure that this hope is real for us. The first thing that I want you to see is this, that this hope, the scripture that we're talking about, is not of this world. It's not in this world. That's what we would like to think. That's how we would like to use that term. That's how we would hope for 2024 and the things of this world. But biblically, theologically, the rich side of hope is not tied to this world. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is talking about the resurrection in this passage. You remember that? He talks about the beginning where he states all of the people who witnessed the resurrection of Christ... Excuse me. And then in chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, Paul entertains some arguments against the resurrection. He's recognizing that there are some people that don't believe in the truth of the resurrection. And he has several different conditional clauses, several different if statements that he makes. And he concludes in 19. That's the verse I want to look at. But recognizing these truths, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, 
then there is no resurrection, excuse me, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus did not rise, number one. Number two, we are still in our sins, which is a very interesting thought. When we think about sharing the gospel and talking about the death of Christ, we need to add in the resurrection. That's a key part of the truth of the gospel. Paul says that his preaching is vain and empty, and our faith is vain and empty if there is no resurrection. But it's in verse 19 that he comes to a conclusion that is actually quite profound for our hope thinking today. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says this. Oops, excuse me. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, if we are people who have our hopes settled on Christ, but it's only in this life only, there is no future, there is no resurrection, if that's what our hope is focused on, is in this world alone, even if it is based on Christ, he says this, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. Most miserable of all people. Facing all of the things that come to us as a result of trusting in Christ. Recognizing the reality of living in this world and the suffering that comes our way. All of this we face and there's no future. If that's the case, there's no future. We have no hope other than things in this world. Even if it's focused on Christ, then Paul says, we are most pitied. Why? Because the hope that Paul talks about, the hope that the Bible talks about, the theological rich hope that he wants us to focus on is not of this world. Secondly, if it is not of this world, what is the hope that Paul wants us to understand, that God wants us to understand? It's this, that our hope is to be focused on God himself and on Christ himself and on their character. And the most important thing I want to emphasize, it's focused on our future. It's focused on the future. It's focused on things beyond us, the things that are the completion of our salvation, the things that we often slide to the back, don't even necessarily think about. Paul wants us to put in the front of our sight. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 to 8. If you turn in your Bibles there, please. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 to 8. Paul is standing before Agrippa, King Agrippa, and he's giving testimony to his faith, to this king. And he says this, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. I'm standing trial for this hope that has become a reality, he's going to say. The reality in Jesus, who has risen from the dead, and the resurrection that they had hoped for in the far, far eschatological future has now come all the way to the front in the person of Christ. He continues to say this, The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, the resurrection of the dead, as it were, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. How do we know what that hope is? Notice what it says in verse 8. Why is it considered incredible among you, people, if God does raise the dead? That resurrection, folks, the reality of the resurrection. As much as we can rejoice and glory in the salvation that we have in Christ now and all of the benefits, be it justification or forgiveness, etc. It is the resurrection that is our final hope, that is our final confidence, that is the final step that we are to be focused on and thinking about and meditating on and recognizing. 
And for Paul, he says, this is the hope of the fathers. This is the hope of the Old Testament that is now eschatological future. In the future age has come all the way front. Jesus Christ has begun that age of resurrection and that hope is real now. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He talks about the completion of the salvation that we have. Explaining it further in the passage that Mike read for us. So let's go back to that passage, if you will. Romans chapter 8 for just a minute. Romans chapter 8. I want to pick up, we're going to read 20 to 25, but I want to pick up just a few verses earlier than that. When he says this. Verse 17. He's talking about the adoption we have. The adoption that is real. The adoption that is an objective fact for us. He says this, And if we are children, we are also heirs, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Our inheritance will be a shared inheritance. What Jesus inherits, we will inherit because of our union with Him. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be also glorified with Him. And there you see a hint as to what that inheritance is going to be. Now, coming back to the passage that Mike read. Notice what it says. Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings that we live through in this world, sufferings of living in a sin-filled world, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about that. That creation that we will walk out into after we finish church today. Walking among the trees. Looking up to the sky. That creation is longing for, is moaning for, is groaning for. What? What does it say? The revealing of the sons of God. Now, the passage that Mike read. For the four, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope. What is that hope? It is the completion of our salvation. The whole of creation is waiting, yearning for, longing for our completion of our salvation. He goes on and talks about what that is. That the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption, to futility that he described before, into the freedom that comes with the glory of the children of God. The glory that we will attain in our resurrection bodies. And the creation will finally obtain, as it were, its freedom from its corruption, its freedom from its futility. And the creation is longing for that. The creation is looking forward to that. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, not only the creation, we ourselves, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, the Spirit of God that is the beginning, as it were, the first steps of our salvation that reminds us of a future that is real and certain and more full, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption. Didn't he just say we were adopted up above? He did. 
There's an aspect of adoption that is true. We truly are the children of God. We truly are the adult sons of God. But there's an aspect of adoption, the final stages of that adoption, when we receive our inheritance, when we receive our resurrection body, as he says here, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For, for it is in that hope that we have been saved. In that hope that we have been saved. The completion of our salvation is the rich and full hope that I believe Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3. That Paul is talking about here. That reminds us that with all the things we can hope for down here, as Paul would say, we would be most miserable if our hope is focused on that. Instead, we lift our eyes above. We lift our eyes to heaven. We recognize that there is a hope of glory. As Romans 5.2 says, a certainty, a confidence that we will attain to that glory, to the resurrection body that will complete our salvation and we will be finally what we are saved to be. Amazing statements. Truly amazing statements. Paul says in Colossians 1.5, we have this hope because of the gospel. He says in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory is Christ in us. So we have Christ in us. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the reality of the gospel teaching us. And that reality lifts our eyes and points us up and forward to the completion of our salvation. It gives us a confidence and a security. But it doesn't end there. When we think about this, what exactly is the hope we're talking about? It is Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Let's look at what he says about a very important point of this future. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So we say no to those things. We put off, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, those things. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, we say yes to those things. We put on those things. But notice verse 13. While we are saying yes and no, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So Paul reminds us that it is the return of Christ, the return of Christ, where we have the fullness of this future that will be ours, and we will be taken to heaven to receive our resurrection bodies. That is our blessed hope. That is the glorious appearing that we should be looking for all the time. That our hope should be focused on that and not on things in this world. Because we are united with Him. Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit abiding in us. Because we know the truth of the gospel. So point number one of God's perspective on hope, God's provision for hope that blesses us and blesses others is, this hope is not tied to this world. It's not tied to anything in this world. Secondly, this hope points us to the completion of our salvation. It's focused on His plan. It's focused on the future. 
That's where our hope resides. And thirdly, the blessings of this hope are absolutely amazing. If we look at where the hope resides, we look and see exactly what hope brings us. Let's look at some passages both in the Old Testament and New Testament that remind us of what this hope really actually does for us now. Now. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, please. Hebrews chapter 6. We all know Hebrews 6 is an interesting passage because of the warning passage, but as we go beyond that passage and go further on down into the chapter, verses six, chapter 6, verse 18 and 19 say this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, his promise and his oath, impossible for God to lie, he says this, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The reality of the future set before us because God has promised us a future salvation that is real, that is full. We are given strong encouragement to take hold of that hope, to have confidence in that hope. He says this about that hope. Verse 19, this hope we have is an anchor of our soul, both sure and and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. So that's the first blessing, I would say. When we use the word hope in general, we think about something that, yeah, maybe it's 50, 60% certain. I hope it will snow tomorrow, but you never know. This hope is different. This hope is 100% certain, secure, and confident. It is an anchor for our soul. A reality that we can believe in and trust in. A reality that is still in the future that we can't see yet, but we can know it to be true. And we can have a confidence. A hope of glory. I will be glorified. I will be with God. 100% certain and sure and confident. Secondly, this hope that we have gives us strength. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Very famous passage where Isaiah talks about the incomprehensibility, excuse me, the incomparability of our God. That he doesn't compare to anything. Nothing else in this world can stand up against him. No idol can be said to be uh, that reflects him. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll read verse 31, but I want to go back up to verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of, ends of the earth, does not become weary? You think he doesn't care. You think he's not involved. You think he has to rest. It's not true. He never wearies. He never is tired. Verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, those who wait the Lord. The Hebrew word there for wait is also translated hope in various places throughout the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament. So this concept of waiting, waiting eagerly, waiting confidently, those who wait for the Lord, look at what it says, will gain new strength. The hope that we have that is in the future, not tied to this world, the hope that is based on the, on the finished work of Christ, the work of the Spirit of God in us, the reality of Christ being in us, gives us new strength every day. We will mount up with wings like eagles. 
They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Our spiritual strength comes from that. The reality of that. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. A couple more blessings and benefits of this hope that we have. Romans chapter 15 has two verses that talk about this. It's pretty amazing. Verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament Scriptures, was written for our instruction, so that through them, excuse me, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. These Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, that give us the hope, that give us the certainty, that reminds us of these truths, give us an ability to be encouraged and to persevere and to continue through all of the hardship and trial and suffering and struggle that we have. It gives us confidence and security. It gives us encouragement and perseverance. Now notice verse 13. Now may the God of hope, the God who gives hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in trusting in Him, joy and peace in doing so, so that you will abound in hope. Abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing statement. All of these blessings that we have, the joy and the encouragement, the perseverance that we have because of the hope, because our hope is properly focused above on the character of God, on the program of God, we have all of these blessings that He promises to give to us. And the last one we won't read. Psalm 25.5 says, When our hope is placed in God, we feel no shame. We feel no shame. Remember what shame is. We've talked about that before. Shame is putting your hope in something and have that something fail you. Fail you. That's not the case with our God. That's not the case with the hope that we have and the future that we have. We will put our hope in that, and in the end, it will not fail. It will not fail. So what does this mean for us today? What are we to do about all of this? I have three suggestions to you. Number one, focusing on that first part that I talked about. Maybe there needs to be some, quote, repentance that needs to be done with regard to this for us. Maybe we have had a point in our lives where we hope in a job, or we hope in a relationship, or we hope in a political party, or we hope in riches, or we hope in education, or we hope in success. Not saying that any of those things can't be things we work for. Not saying any of those things can't be things we pray for, but none of those things are ultimate for us. None of those things is the foundation, the founding rock upon which we build our life. If I have this house, if I get this job, it's done. I have everything I need. That's not true. So we need to take steps to repent of that hope that is falsely placed. And to recognize, maybe I need to go back through my life and say, what is it that I'm trusting in? What is it that I'm hoping in? Is there anything with regard to the future that God has promised me that I even think about, talk about, wonder about? Point number two. This objective confidence that we've talked about, this security and certainty that we have, we will receive our resurrection bodies. We will attain to the glory of Christ. We will have this inheritance with Him. Certain, absolutely sure, 
We need to talk about that. We need to think about that. We need to meditate upon that. We need to allow that to rest in our emotions so that as our emotions go up and down and up and down and up and down, there can be a stable line that says, no, there is a reality. There is a hope. I'm going to get that resurrection body. I am going to get that. Jesus is coming back. He could come back today, and I could obtain to that. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says what? We live by faith and not by sight. We don't look around and see the things around us. That whole passage is talking about the resurrection body that we believe in and trust in. And that's our privilege. Our privilege to be able to say we have confidence in the future that no one else has. Based on the finished work of Christ. Based on the work of the Spirit in us. Based on gospel truth. That Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ's death and resurrection has taken care of our sin problem and given us a certainty. A certainty. And so this needs to be something that is a passion for us. It needs to be an intention for us. It needs to be something we meditate about, think about, talk about. Such that people will say, how is it that you have this hope? And we can give an apologetic for that hope. And then thirdly, a suggestion. I listed all of those blessings. Renewed strength, joy, comfort, encouragement, perseverance, no shame. All of those things. Ask God to give those things to you. As you think about this hope, as you focus on this hope, as you pray about this hope, as you pray and ask God, ask God to give you these blessings and include a key word. Do this word, do this Lord, because... Because of the gospel. Because of who you are. Because that is your plan. And remind ourselves daily. As the early Christians would say and greet one another with a Maranatha. Reminding themselves of the future coming of Christ that could happen any day. May it not be something for us that we think, oh, I'm going to live until I'm 75 or 80. May it be a thing that I wake up each day and say, This could be the day. I have hope. This could be the day. And live in that confidence, in that security, that reality, such that people ask you, why is it that you have this hope? There is hope for us. True hope for us. It's objective. It's real. It's true. It's secure. It's ongoing. It's certain. And when we have that hope, and we talk about that hope, and think about that hope, and rest in that hope, then 1 Peter 3.15 will become a reality. And this year we will have many opportunities to give an apologetic for that kind of hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of this in, this passage, in these passages about the reality of hope and what it means for us. <clears throat>